Hello, and welcome to Life Solved, a podcast that showcases how University of Portsmouth research is changing the world. I'm Glenn Harris, and I work in the media team here. On a daily basis, I get to chat to brilliant researchers and understand the ins and outs of their ideas, inspirations, and the real-world applications of their work. This time, it's one for those of you who enjoy digging into the corners of our history or love to uncover fresh insights on the lives of our ancestors. The start of this year brought a very exciting moment for interwar historians, professional and amateur alike. The 1921 census includes a survey of 38 million people living in England and Wales. This period followed a global pandemic and saw economic instability between two world wars. A team of hundreds of conservators have been working to conserve and digitise these 30,000 bound volumes of documents, and now they're available to us all online. So why is this snapshot of human life a hundred years ago so exciting? What kind of insights have we been able to glimpse into this era? Chatting with me today is Deborah Sugg-Ryan, Professor of Design History and Theory, and Dr Melanie Bassett, Research Fellow in Public Engagement. We're going to look at two unique historical angles revealed by these exciting documents. Thanks for joining me. So I've jogged over your titles in the introduction there, but the truth is you both have an enormous passion for our social history and carry out a very diverse range of research, don't you? My my interest in history comes from a very specific place because I'm a design historian, but like lots of design historians, I'm also interested in social history as well because design on its own is meaningless. And my research focuses on the history of the home. I'm interested in not just what homes look like, but how people lived in them. And I also have another role in that I am the series consultant to BBC Two's A House Through Time and also appear in every episode. So we've made four series so far of that. And Mel, what about your kind of uh, academic and personal interest in the census? I'm a trustee of the Portsmouth Royal Dockyard Historical Trust and my PhD was on dockyard workers in Edwardian era, more specifically the male side, but I've been working on their Triangle Girls exhibition. So that's when I started to to look more seriously at women workers and also related work that I did on war widows. So I sort of joined the two together to look at the, the histories of war widows that worked in the Royal Dockyard during the First World War and sort of started to put the the archives together to um, draw out a bigger picture of what was happening with these women and, and sort of trying to flesh out their story and so that it gave them a bit more agency and in terms of seeing these women not just as widows as something that happened to them in a you know, specific period of time based on the war, but actually how they dealt with it and how they they got on with their lives and and what happened to them after the war. And am I right in thinking that anyone can access this census on a pay-per-view basis on the Find My Past database? How, How does that work? Yeah, you don't need a subscription to Find My Past to be able to access the 1921 census you simply log in and can access on a, on a pay-per-view basis. There are different ways in which you can search. If you know the name of the person that you are looking for, you can search by their name. You can also search by address. And what I recommend doing if you're searching by address is to really make use of wildcards in order to be able to do that. So if instead of writing out street, if you just put ST asterisk, that will pick up all the different variations. 
one of the things to be really aware of is that individual households at the same address are logged in separate entries. So if you have a house in multiple occupation, you'll get lots of entries at that address. And then once you've found what it is you want to look at and you, you want to take a, a deeper look into the record, you will need to decide how you want to proceed. There are two options. You can pay £2.50 for a transcription or you can pay £3.50 for the image of the full record. And I would always recommend paying the £3.50 for the full image because there are some transcription errors. And the other thing as well is that if you hover over the full image, the transcription will pop up anyway, which is a further bit of clarification. If you are wanting to have a look at a very large number of entries, then my recommendation would be that you might want to actually go and see the census in person yourself at the National Archives in Southwest London. And then you can also access it at Manchester Central Library and the National Library of Wales in Aberystwyth. And it's worth emphasising here as well, the census just covers England and Wales. Scotland has it has a completely separate census. And why is the digitisation of the 1921 census so significant for historians? What does it make more possible? First of all, if we're talking about individuals, it allows us to really add details about their lives. We, we can see where they lived. We can see other members of their households. One of the things that I'm most excited about in this census is there is an amazing set of occupational codes that are um, put against individuals. So you, you see what it was they were doing for a living. And there's a brilliant dictionary, which there is free access to online, where you can look up what those occupations are. The Dictionary of Occupational Codes is really exciting because you can look up some of the new occupations that were emerging in the 1920s, particularly around factory work. So, for example, one of the occupations I found for someone who I'd been doing some some history on worked as a cigar roller. And um, when I when I looked up, you get a, a kind of fuller description of uh, where it really explains what that was like in the the factory production line process. You also get the name and address of the employer as well. You get to see people's marital status, you get the number of children that are alive, and you get information about education as well. So you get quite a lot of extra information on this census. And then the flip side of this, and the thing that I'm particularly interested in is house history. You really get that sense of who was living in the house and, and further kind of details of the household, particularly the number of rooms in the house, which is something I'll, I'll come back to probably later on and talk, talk about in a bit more detail. It's also worth saying as well is that, you know, there was huge upheaval between the 1911 and the 1921 census. So we really get to see societal change, things about remarriage, women's occupations, all sorts of things that are, are, are really sort of important to build up the story between what happened on the 1911 census and then what happened after the First World War as well, which is really exciting. Yeah, because we've not we've not just got the loss of life um, because of because of war. We've also remember got a pandemic as well. We've got the flu pandemic that came in at the end of the war. 
one of the things we know we are seeing in the census is more households where women are widowed, women have remarried, and also the so-called surplus women, the all-female households of mothers and daughters who never got the opportunity to marry because a generation of men had died. One of the other things that was interesting about the new column on children is whether it talks of it sort of had a column about whether or not the father is a alive or both parents are alive. Because some of them who were definitely children of seamen that have died during the Battle of Jutland, which, which I've been researching, you actually see that it says both parents alive. It's interesting in, in some ways because we, we still have to work out the kinks on official documents. So that that's an interesting aspect as well. So that's interesting, Mel. So to kind of follow up on that point, what drew you to focus upon the Jutland war widows and uh, World War One? Portsmouth Dockyard Widows in your research. What have you been able to uncover about them? It was really interesting because it tells you the continuation of their story. We've got aspects of the women as being married and widowed. Working in the dockyard is a way that they need to maybe keep their families together and some extra money. There's also the aspect of patriotism as well. So, you know, a lot of them wanted to do their patriotic duty and and continue to serve during the war effort. But what happens by 1918, 1919 is that they are made redundant because demobilisation, men need to return to the workforce. And so a lot of women were were then made redundant. And then you know, what happened to them? So the 1921 census actually gives us um, an insight into to what they did next. And that's really exciting in terms of the, the social history and the continuing story of these women. And what gaps have you been able to fill with this material? What has it told you about their lives? Uh, I think the most interesting part is that every woman that I've researched so far, their occupation has been home duty. So what it tells us is about the fact that they were barred from the workplace again, really, in terms of what they could, could do. They learned tremendous amount of skills, but... Most of most of the women that I've researched so far were remarried and then they've re-entered the home. So it tells us a bit about the financial situation and the dynamics of, of 1921, that sort of snapshot of time. And it also yeah gives us a, a chance to see how they got on with the rest of their lives, who they met, where they met their husbands as well. Quite a few of them actually got married to, to dockyard workers. So they most probably met their their second husband in the dockyard. And how does this change our view of women's experience of this period? What does it it tell us new, which we might not have known before? Yeah, I think what it does is it actually gives women a bit more agency in terms of, you know, when we think of the history of widowhood, we think of a, a woman in black sort of weeping, the sort of the remembrance services and things like that, where actually women are sidelined a lot of the time with remembrance services. There's a lot of pomp and ceremony, but the, the women are usually forgotten. There's also a lot of wrangling over pensions and, and whether or not they're, they're worthy to have pensions. There, there's a whole sort of set of social morals about whether or not they're adhering to the, the rules about whether they can have pension, which includes remarriage. They would have lost their um, pension on remarriage. So it's interesting to see things like whether or not they did remarry, whether the, the war widow's pension actually was enough for them to live on and that actually 
their their decision to meet somebody else and remarry was was more important to them and have that stability and also yeah just building up the profile of, of these women to say you know they didn't just weep by a graveside or a, a memorial that they went on and they they built their lives again and they raised their children and they had their their families and so you know we can actually do more in terms of contextualizing women's history in the first world war than maybe we could do previously and i'd just like to come back to a point you made deborah early you said about how about the census shows about the changing uses and occupants of a building and you explored this in your bbc series a house through time so how does the new content from the census allow us to have this deeper insight into the domestic lives and circumstances of people living in this period yeah one of the things i did when the census released is i actually went back to all four houses that we we've used in 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 the four series and took a look at them and actually there was some really interesting contrast so so if you compare the house we used in the series in liverpool with the house we used in the series of Bristol and actually both pretty similar size houses from the outside kind of view, three-storey houses with, with some kind of cellar basement space. But their fortunes in 1921 are completely different and it's really interesting. So, so the house in Liverpool has widow Fanny Snewing, who we discovered in the, in the, in the program living with her son Charles who's working as a grocer's assistant and daughter Lillian and I think if we just saw their names and no details of the house we might not assume that the widow may or may not have an income may or may not have inherited money and grocer's assistant is not you know a terribly elevated job however what is really crucial is that they tell you the number of rooms in the census and they are occupying 10 rooms. So they're not letting out rooms to anyone else to bring in an income, which is really common for middle class people. They are they are occupying that whole house by themselves, just, just the three of them, the, the, the widow and her two adult children. Interesting, both unmarried. He was 42, Lillian was 27. So Lillian may well have been, you know, one of these surplus women whose chances were kind of limited. The Bristol house is completely different. The Bristol house, which had started as a wealthy merchant's house with connections to the slave trade when it was built in the 18th century, has slid right down the social scale and is in multiple occupation. Interestingly, they are all members of the same extended family. So they're all the the adult children and grandchildren of the couple who are still there. But you've got 11 rooms, but there are 10 adults and four children in that household. And then what is great is that each entry then tells you how many rooms each household occupied. And it also gives you these wonderful details of their jobs. So the head of the household, George William Curley, is working at an elevator man at John Robinson. And I thought, what's an elevator man? And who was John Robinson? Well, I was able to look up John Robinson, employers in Grace's Guide, which describes them as crushers, refiners and manufacturers of linseed, cottonseed, rapeseed and other oils. 
And an elevator man doesn't mean elevator in terms of lift. It means probably operating equipment, sort of lifting equipment within that. And a lot of the other men in the household are connected with that business or they are connected with the shipbuilding industry as well we start seeing these echoes of these wider societal changes. But for me, the thing that is really crucial is this recording of the number of rooms in the house. And the way that rooms um, were recorded is, is really interesting. So they counted living rooms, bedrooms and kitchens, but not landings, lobbies or closets, bathrooms, any other warehouse or shop rooms attached to a house. And they only counted sculleries if meals were eating in them. And there's, there's this kind of, um, writing a book about the history of the kitchen at the moment. And the term kitchen and scullery are slightly different to how we would use them now. So the scullery tends to be the the, the place where the sink was, where the, the kind of dirty work was done. And it's during this period that kitchens start moving up from basements into ground floors. The other shift we are really, really seeing in this census. And, and you know, Mel talked about women's work is domestic service. So we're starting to get this, this shift of middle-class households having fewer domestic servants. There was this idea of a servant problem because women preferred some of the occupations they'd been doing during the war. But, the, but, but you do still have domestic servants, but crucially, they often lived out rather than lived in that's a really interesting thing on the census because sometimes you'll get someone with their occupation as servant, but they are recorded as their at their home address rather than the the large house they may have worked in. So that's another kind of shift you'll you'll find here. And what does that tell us about the way different classes lived from the census this time? What do we learn from the census about how perhaps there were these class shifted and how kind of different classes were living at this time? What we're starting to see is a shift towards home ownership, which has really accelerates by the outbreak of the Second World War. So we know in 1910 about 10% of houses were owner-occupied. Most people rented. There, were, there was no stigma around renting. The, the, the figure's quite hard to ascertain in 1921. It's certainly still less than a quarter. So home ownership is one of the shifts that, that really start in this period. But I would say, you know, we've already talked a bit about the, the impact of the war on women. But I think that this, this shift out of domestic serv- service that is beginning uh, it is really, really important. And though domestic service doesn't go into absolute decline until the 1950s, it's still the biggest employer of women. And there's a big shift to get women back into domestic service after the First World War. But the opening up, I think, of, of new occupations, so assembly line work, working in shops, working in offices, they can all be seen in the in the census there are these big shifts. And I think there's this, you start seeing as well, this general shift towards people wanting a better standard of living as well. Yeah. And Mel, does that bear out kind of what you found in your research, looking into like the Jutland war widows and other people at that time? Did that kind of bear out what you found in your research? With my cases, most of them were occupied in home duties. So I think what it it tells us in terms of their sort of financial situation that these were 
women that were mainly sort of working class, slightly maybe lower middle class. And so you see that they could live possibly on their war widow's pension if they decided not to get remarried or if they did get remarried, then they would they were sort of incorporated back into a home role, especially if they had children to raise. So you, um, there was a, a slightly different aspect there. And I think that's got to do with sort of the, the socioeconomic position of those particular widows, which is different to the factory and the working girl that you think of the flappers and, and things like that. These women were, you know, previously married and some of them were in a situation where they there was still a respectability about staying home and it, it was a sort of respectable marker of the fact that they could keep their family on the one income rather than having their wife working as well. So it, it wasn't about joint incomes. And I, th- I think that's a really important point, the idea of the breadwinner, the male breadwinner bringing in the wage, and you get this professionalisation of the idea of the, of the housewife in this period. And interestingly, it is both for working and lower middle class women who, you know, had never had domestic servants so that there is this and may have been domestic servants so there's this new kind of identity of professional housewife but you also get those those shifts in middle and upper class people because the other thing that happened immediately after the first world war is there is a big post-war inflation a big cost of living crisis uh, with some echoes of, of of you know what we're thinking about now and this kind of decline in standards and this this idea of the servant problem and and you know this kind of crisis in in being able to get decent servants because women prefer different kinds of work maybe also um, mask the fact that women couldn't afford servants well, it sounds like a fascinating area and I think one we could probably explore in a lot more detail so perhaps one for another life solved down the line but you've both been new diving into the documents on the census um, how easy is it to use and were you able to find what you were looking for? For me where I'm looking at individual records um, and particularly women's records it is quite difficult I'm um, tracing women that have been married so they've changed their surnames uh, from their maiden names. And then if they've been remarried, we're looking at another surname change. And so that can be particularly challenging in terms of trying to trace these women. So I've had to um, employ a lot of corroborating evidence to to trace them. So it's not just a case of um, searching a particular name. It's more a case of going, okay, this looks like that person. and then looking at my other evidence to see what their you know, what their maiden name was, what their married name was, tracing their their remarriage, uh, trying to confirm what these names might have been. So looking at war widows' pension records, you know, birth marriages and deaths, uh, the employee records of the dockyard. Um, so you can start to corroborate that evidence. Um, one thing that was interesting though is that I found quite a few of the widows. Uh, still living in the house that they were living in when they were widowed. So it's interesting to see how they've remarried and then their husbands have moved in to what was their former marital home. So um, that's sort of interesting in a way um, that you know, we're seeing um, the sort of rebuilding of the, the family unit in the same building. So I think there's definitely more work that can be done on that as well. The other challenge that is particularly interesting is is the idea that the parents are, are still alive so i've got for example clara bogust 
was really married. She was the wife of ship's chef William James Bogust, who um, died on HMS Queen Mary during the Battle of Jutland. And it's seen that she was living at 9 King Street in Southsea, which was the same home as that she's listed in for her um, war widow's pension and um, as her the next of kin information that I can find on her from, from when she was notified that her husband had died. She got remarried to a George Dix. You can see that her her daughters, Eunice, Alberta and Ruby, although they have her former or her late husband's name, it's recorded as saying that both parents are alive, which is different from, from another couple that I've I've also researched where it says father dead. So it's interesting to see I'm um, like big data searches, whether we can actually corroborate how many people lost their parents during the, the First World War. And how about you, Deborah? How was your experience of using uh, the data? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've done loads of different searches for my research. So, you know, I've looked into some of the case studies from my from my book and um, I have looked at all the houses on House Through Time. I've looked at all the people I've written about for the Dictionary of National Biography. But the first search I did was for my grandfather, who was born in 1920. And he has always been a bit of a family mystery because we don't know who his father was. He he was illegitimate. He didn't know who his father was. But what we do know and it's it's been it's been a real kind of labor of love project is my my grandfather was from Hlamroost in North Wales and his mother was a Williams and then the man his father went on and married only a few months after he was born was called Roberts but that man was apparently not his father and in fact if you had looked at my grandfather with his siblings they looked nothing alike my grandfather was very tall his siblings weren't so i was really really intrigued to where where would i find them and i had spent absolutely years trying to track down their marriage certificate and had several False starts, but just before the census was released, I finally got what I I believe to be the right marriage certificate for them. And I'd been looking for them in North Wales, and I discovered that they had married in South Wales near Bridgend. I found them in Cairo, which is very much a mining community in South Wales. And the brilliant thing with marriage certificates is marriage certificates tell you the father's name. So you have this kind of additional set of verification and they also give you home addresses as well. It's really interesting for me from a family point of view and as a historian as well about, we all have secrets, don't we? And why why do we have the kind of family secrets we have? Why do we we tell the stories that we tell? Well, that's a fascinating insight into your family there, Deborah. And what tips do you and Mel have for families or amateur historians about using the census who want to kind of delve back into their family history? How can they even go or contribute to the census potentially as well? So you've got these two ways of searching. You've got searching by name and searching by address. If you have already got information from other corroborating records like marriage certificates, birth certificates, 
that will help. The other thing that will help you as well is to have already looked at 19, the 1911 census and then also to have looked at the 1939 register. And I think this is an important point that the 1939 register has already been released. This is like a, a special kind of census that was, that was taken at the outbreak of the Second World War. It was going to help with the introduction of identity cards, which didn't happen. Lots of people you will find are at the same address as they are in those two records. So the address will all already give you a clue. I think one of the other things that will really help you are wildcard searches. They can really help you with transcription errors. Those errors may seem obvious to us, but they're not necessarily obvious to the person who's trying to decipher the handwriting and, and, and transcribing it. So you, you can make those corrections and you will, you, once you've made that correction, you will get an email telling you whether or not they've accepted it too. You only, you, the, the idea is that, that, um, the transcription should be a transcription of what is there. So there is that kind of caveat to it because sometimes the enumerators made mistakes as well. But, but yeah, I would say, you know, go armed when you start your search with all the information you have because that will really help you take some of the guesswork out of it. I don't think if you're starting family history, from zero, the 1921 census is the place to start. The best place to start is the 1939 register because it's the most recent record we have and then work backwards. The other thing I would say as well, just a final tip, is that if you're interested in the house history side of things, just be aware that street numbers change even the names of streets change or streets may not exist. So my top tip for there is you, there is a map search you can use on Find My Past. You can also go to the National Library of Scotland, which has, you, you have free access to digitise ordnance survey maps. I would concur with everything Deborah said in terms of getting corroborating evidence, because at the moment where it is pay-per-view, as I found out to the university's cost, <laughs> that you can, you can actually um, select someone you, you think is, is pretty certain to be the right person and actually find that they're not. So especially at this stage, it's it's definitely worth being as sure as you can be when you select that record to, to purchase that they are going to be who you think they're going to be. And that this is why it might be worth visiting in person because sometimes if you can't find the person you're looking for and the street numbers have changed, you might want to look at neighbouring houses and that that can often be really helpful. And I think one of the things that is tripping people up with this census is the way in which it records each household at the same address as a separate household. So the example I've just given you from my own family history um, some of those family members in 1911 are still all living at the same address, but they're recorded in the, in the same census entry. So it's, it's, there is the shift between 1911 and 1921 into recording households at households in multiple occupation as separate households. And what surprised you most in the documents you've, uh, you've reviewed so far? Mel, what was, uh, what was something really interesting, um, which you found in your research? I think one of the things I found most interesting was the fact that there's still so much more to find out. 
So if I give you an example of one of my women, so Clara Edith Fernley was the wife of Frank Fernley, who was also killed on HMS Queen Mary. So I found her as a visitor in North End. So it, it's really interesting because I had a look at where she was in terms of where she lived and she's visiting this house. There were a couple of other people there, the head of the family and the, the wife I then researched into to find out what the, what was the link, why was she visiting them? And it transpires that she was most probably working in the dockyard with the head of the household because her name was Fanny Hoare. So very unfortunate name. She had a daughter called Florence, Hall, but the, the married name of the family was Florence. She was Florence Long, but her daughter still had the name of her late father. So I could probably deduce from that that she was a war widow that had got remarried to, to Mr. Long. And then there was another visitor of the house, a Mr. Redman. And so I wondered, you know, is there any link between Clara and Mr. Redman? So I did a bit of searching and I found him having married by the 1939 England and Wales Register. So it prompts the questions about, you know, whether or not Clara decided to not get remarried because she wanted to maintain her, her war widow's pension. She got married in 1904, but she was childless. The fact that she's in the 1921 census, she's a visitor. I don't, I still don't know where she was living. I haven't really been able to sort of trace her I don't know what her relationship was with, with Lewis Redmond, whether they were having a relationship. Um, so there, there was all these things that you can start to, to think about and speculate of, of a story. Why, why was she visiting that household? She's, uh, she was originally from sort of Halifax area. Yeah, I just, there, there are some answers you'll, you'll just never know. So as much as the 1921 census can give us an insight into to lots of interesting things, it can also take you on a wild goose chase around lots of other possibilities um, and leave you with more questions than, than answers. And Deborah, how about you? What was the uh, what was a inter really interesting kind of story or facts that you uncovered? I had a look in the house that I live in at the moment. So typical South Sea Victorian terraced house built for the middle classes. It was owned by the same family for so long. So the house was built in about 1879 and lived in by a retired captain from the army and his wife and their three children, two sons, and the youngest is a daughter called Thurza. And what is quite interesting and unusual is that Thurza got a good education and indeed attended the University of London in 1896, which is quite unusual for women to get that kind of education then and says something about her father. And then um, her father dies in 1901. Um, there are also two more brothers. So there are so there's the widow and five adult children and Thurza is right in the middle. Now in 1911, Two of the brothers have moved out, have married, have their own households, but Thurza is living in the house, aged 34 in 1911, as head of the household. And I know from the rates 
books that the family also owned the house next door. So clearly the rent from the house next door was giving them an income. She had been working as a governess in 1901, but in 1911, she's clearly keeping house for her two brothers. And in 1939, the same thing is there, but there's just one of the brothers. The other brother has moved out. So I thought, nothing to see there in 1921. It's just going to be, you know, further... Thursa and one or two of her brothers and there they are one brother is working as a shop assistant in an ironmonger's store in South Sea and the other one um, was a clerk in Holy Orders and interestingly I knew I knew that from the last census and Holy Orders from the Church of South Africa now, one of the sources we use a lot on House Through Time are newspapers. And the British Newspaper Archive is a fantastic resource. Again, you need a subscription. You can either do a standalone subscription or you can do it as part of a Find My Pass subscription or you can access it in public libraries. And I looked up the house in the local paper um, for around, around the early 1920s and found a wonderful advert for the house, which was called Minden then, being advertised as a preparation school for sons of professional men, um, seen over by the Reverend Smith. So I thought this is fascinating. This is obviously how he was earning a living. So that was already really interesting. Who knew that my house had been a school? But also in the 1921 census is a child. You know, these are three single people. So who who is this child? This child is six, living with with these three adults in their in their late thirties, early forties, and it turns out the child is the child of one of the brothers who had died. I haven't been able to find out how he died. It's either probably going to be service in the war or of the flu. And his wife, I found her in the 1921 census. She's remarried. She's living with her daughter from the first marriage. So why has she kept the daughter but not the son? The man she's remarried also has a child from his first marriage because his wife had died and they've got another child of their own. So there you've got, you know, this, this amazing insight into widows, remarriage, new blended families. And then I just thought, what must it have been like for this little boy to be living, you know, with, with these three unmarried adults, one of whom was a reverend? Why was he there? How did he feel about his sister being with his mother and him being there? I I don't know if I'll ever know, but it was it was such a huge surprise because I really just thought, oh, nothing to see here. And all of a sudden, this whole new history opened up, which actually, in lots of ways, shouldn't have been that unexpected, because we know that there were these new kinds of blended families in this period. Oh, right. So, well, what an exciting uncovering. Like, who knew your house could be so exciting? And that was, well, it's just an absolutely wonderful chat with both of you. I really enjoyed that. And I think we could have gone on for a lot longer. And just to kind of just to see kind of just that one snapshot of kind of that history and the stories it can tell about what life was like at that time has been fascinating. So, um, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It definitely makes you wonder about all the gaps in history and human life that are just waiting to be filled with more research and resources like this. You can find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth on our website, port.ac.uk forward slash research. An earlier episode of Life Solved looked at how a historical mapping project collated digitised images of Britain to shed a light in times gone by. If you'd like to have a listen to that, 
Look for our episode titled Mapping Past and Present with Professor Humphrey Southall and Paula Alcott on this podcast feed. And you can keep up with all the episodes of Life Solved by subscribing or following on your favourite app. We'd love it if this episode has inspired a conversation for you. Tell us about it on social media using the hashtag LifeSolved. Thanks for listening. <laughs>